0: We'll be right The Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Sunday, December first, two thousand thirteen. This is podcast number three hundred sixty-one, and my name is Ben Stone. Uh, real quick announcements: I want to thank everybody for all the support, the donations through the last few months. You know, even considering the fact that I'm making almost no podcasts recently, uh, we still are uh, appreciating the donations that are coming in. I want to thank everyone for their patience during this sort of a winter hiatus that I've been taking. And... uh you know, after the first of the year, we'll probably jump back in there and start uh, producing a lot more podcasts. I just really needed some time here to spend with my wife and and kind of travel a little bit and kind of get my head back together and everything. And even during December, you know, I'll be on the Freedom Fiend show, and uh, there will probably be other things going on this month. So uh, so be patient with me. I'll get back to some more consistent uh, podcasting once the new year gets here, I hope. No one knows the future, but we hope. Now, today I have kind of an unpleasant task that I have to deal with, and I definitely am not looking forward to it. It's something that I feel obliged to do. That's why I, you know, interrupted my, uh, essentially interrupted my vacation to deal with this. Uh, Gary North has come out with an article. It was it was on um, Lou Rockwell's site over this weekend, and it's on Gary North's site as well. And the title of this is Bitcoins, the second biggest Ponzi scheme in history. Now, in this article, uh, well, let me give some background information first. Uh, you know, back in the nine, back in the eighties and the early, especially in the early eighties, Gary North was a huge influence on me. I read pretty much everything that was Gary North related that I could get my hands on. Um, i uh, Gary North is a Christian reconstructionist. I was in the early eighties a Christian reconstructionist um, and i and I really accredit a lot of my economic foundations to gary north 's writings on the topic uh, so you know and and i 'll be the first to say that Gary North is an extremely intelligent person uh, i could never uh, you know I could never go to battle in a battle of wits i would I would definitely not want to take on Gary North. There's a, a really good debate that's a few years old between Gary North and Walter Block where, uh, you know, Gary North is sort of a dry speaker. He's not a real energetic type, whereas Walter Block is very fun and energetic and, and, you know, um, a really good, engaging speaker and, so if you and I believe it's I believe the uh, debates on YouTube but I know the audio of it exists over at mesas.com I'm sorry mesas.org um but um in the debate uh you know Gary North just shreds Walter Block I mean he just tears him apart now Walter Block in many ways won the debate because he's funny he's engaging he keeps things on a lighter uh note Whereas, you know, Gary North was facts. He was just facts, facts, facts. But in a debate, if you can keep your head and really listen for who has the better argument and not who has the better sales pitch, uh, then you can, you know, get to the root of the thing a lot better. And that's what Gary North was able to do. He he had the, the facts. He had the better argument. And he had, you know, uh, everything in line. And Walter Block relied on maybe a sales pitch. So, you know, I'm saying that because I have the greatest respect for Gary North. But when Gary North is wrong, then I have no problems uh, pointing that out. Now, uh, like I said, he's a Christian Reconstructionist. Uh, I abandon Christian Reconstructionism due to unresolved inconsistencies in both logic and in theology. Um, Christian Reconstructionism very much like Puritanism, is based on the five points of Calvinism. Um, and as I examined these one by one and very clearly and carefully went through and looked at what the implications were, what it was based on, where this logic would take you if you followed it through to its end, I began reject, rejecting uh, each of the five points of Calvinism. And so without knowing it, I followed the same logical and theological path as the Quakers did in the 1600s, when they rejected the Five Points of Calvinism and thereby re, uh, rejected Puritanism, and I'm and I'm equating Puritanism with Christian Reconstructionism for a number of reasons. First off, uh, they are founded on the same principles, uh, and they very much look alike. And if you take them each out to their logical conclusion, um, you pretty much have the same thing. Christian Reconstructionism today is essentially uh 1600s puritanism evolved out and with uh, survivalism built into it it's like it's like christian reconstructions today are essentially survivalist puritans and uh and that's not good um, as i began more and more to to understand these uh the five points of calvinism and why i was rejecting reconstructionism uh i also Historically speaking, I started learning about the the real history of the Puritans and what horrible people that they were and what uh, horrible results of their theology developed. And I began to see the pattern that Christian Reconstructionism goes down that same path. It's the same path of eventually uh, a small group of elites will make all the decisions for everybody, and, uh, the variety of things that are against the law just increases and increases as that small group of people. Well, that's the state. That's, that's everything that, that I hate about government. And there it is all wrapped up in, in a tight little theological, uh, bundle. So, uh, actually, in, uh, in developing a rejection for Christian Reconstructionism and a rejection for Puritanism, I laid the found uh the 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 foundational um works for uh my ability to reject the state as as also a theology um so you know in that sense I can kind of accredit it uh accredit gary north for for uh, for allowing me to fully understand christian reconstructionism, therefore I could reject it so anyway but now in defense of gary north i want to say. Whenever you're talking about Gary North, you kind of have to deal with the elephant in the room. And what I mean by the elephant in the room is, if you go over to Wikipedia and you read the Gary North page at Wikipedia, there's some really nasty accusations against him. And so it's difficult uh, to have a conversation, especially on the Internet, without somebody bringing up these accusations on Wikipedia. And so I want to read those now. This is directly from Wikipedia. It says, North favors capital punishment for a range of offenses. These include women who lie about their virginity, blasphemers, non-believers, children who curse their parents, male homosexuals, and other people who commit acts deemed capital offenses in the Old Testament. North also favors capital punishment for women who have had abortions. And then for each of these, there are... uh, uh, references tagged, uh, references, uh, the references given are, um, uh, reference 22, well, I'll go through them each, uh, each. So is this true? Does Gary North actually believe that children who curse their parents should be put to death? Does he really believe that anyone who blasphemes or anyone who's a non-believer should be put to death? Does he really believe this? Well, that's quite the accusation. So if you're going to come out with an accusation like that, that's that dramatic, then you have to have some kind of dramatic evidence to support it. So if we look at each of these uh, footnotes and follow through the references, what you find is very weak evidence presented by Wikipedia uh, about this. And I have, um, through several different means, I have taken to task the uh, the moderators at Wikipedia, and there's been long, drawn-out arguments and discussions over this particular topic with Gary North at Wikipedia. And I have to say that I'm very disappointed with Wikipedia in the sense that they have allowed these accus- accusations to remain without anything better to support them than what they have. Um, I don't know, one way or the other, if Gary North actually believes these things. All I can do Is Look at the evidence by his accusers. So if we look at this, we look at reference number 22 or footnote number 22. It says, on the subject of executing children, North has written, and it's in quotes, the integrity of the family must be maintained by the threat of death. And it says, C. Olson, it's talking about um, Walter Olson here, says, C. Olson, also C. Gary North, The Sinai Strategy, Economics, and the Ten Commandments, Tyler, Texas, Institute for Christian Economics, 1986, pages 59 through 60. Now, that's a pretty specific reference. The problem is, I know that book. I don't only know that book, I own that book. I own that book. Back in about 1990, about in 1987 when I bought it and I've had it ever since then and I know the book well. And so when I see this reference, I'm like, wait a minute. That's not what this is talking about. If you go and get the book or even, I'm sure it's available online, but if you actually look at the book, what Gary North is talking about in the book is economics. He's not talking about capital punishment. It's not even the topic. That Wikipedia's accusers are talking about. The context is in reference to building economic prosperity over generations. It's not about capital punishment. Walter Olson is either incapable of following North's argument, uh, or he's being dishonest with his, uh, with his criticism. I don't know. I don't know which. I don't know, I don't know that much about Walter Olson. So I don't know if he's just not bright enough to understand Gary North's book or if he has some kind of personal beef and just decides to attack Gary North. Uh, in footnotes number 23 and 24 in Wikipedia, both of these are references to uh, their accusers who don't directly provide sources for their criticisms. Uh, it's John Suggs and, again, this Walter Olson. Now, um, both give negative opinions of North without directly quoting source material. Olson had an, argue, uh, had an article at uh, at reason, and that's referenced here in wikipedia but even the even the reason article was unsourced. it was just basically a hit piece that reason should have been ashamed of to uh, to have published it. It was really garbage it doesn't have any good solid source material in it. The best thing that I've read from Olson um, in providing some kind of proof of uh of norths believing these things is he claims to have heard it in a lecture that north gave well but then he doesn't cite where the lecture was or 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 you know when or anything like that and he doesn't provide us with a recording of it or any kind of notes from it or anything else he just says it was so we're just supposed to believe him you see well that's not a, that's not a formation for accusations like this you can't just you can't just say something really really bold and not provide any kind of evidence for it other than well i said it there you go so reason really should have been ashamed to have published that article and wikipedia should be ashamed to keep references like that on there now um oh and and i should say the moderators of wikipedia their main reason in keeping olson's accusations are that he was published in reason that's it that's the best argument that the that the moderators in wikipedia can come up with as to why they're keeping these accusations by Olson. Well, reason is not, you know, written by the hand of God and we can just accept whatever's in there. Reason is as much up to up for debate as anything else. So just because it was published by reason doesn't mean that it's facts. You know, Gary North has a huge body of work. He's probably one of the most prolific writers in his field. And if you can't go and actually get some source material for an accusation this wild and this serious... Then you failed. Uh, footnote twenty-five in Wikipedia says letter to Paul Hill. Now this is used by Wiki, uh, by Wikipedia to show that North believes that killing women who have abortions is okay. Um, but the problem is it, this letter to Paul Hill is available on Gary North's site in its in its entirety. You can go there and read it. And what this letter to Paul Hill actually does, it's Gary North sending a letter to this guy, Paul Hill, who was a convicted murderer who killed an abortion doctor. And in the letter, Gary North says that Hill, and this is Gary North's words, Hill is going to burn in hell for his crime. He condemns Hill in this letter, and he clearly um, uh, says that, that Hill is a horrible person for doing this, and he's even worse for claiming that he has the authority of God to do this. Uh, And nowhere in the letter, nowhere in the letter, does he justify killing anyone who's had an abortion. So really, anybody who reads this, this letter, the letter to Paul Hill, and comes to the conclusion that Gary North supports killing women who've had an abortion, is really living in a demented world because it just simply doesn't say anything like that. If Gary North believes that, and I don't know if he believes that or not, but if he believes that... It doesn't, you can't prove it from that letter. It's not in that letter anywhere. And so if you're going to use a reference like that, at least use, at least read the thing. Okay. So in summary here, the accusations that North favors capital punishment for women who lie about their virginity, blasphemers, non-believers, children who curse their parents, male homosexuals, and women who have abortions. It may or may not be true. I don't know. I have no idea. But but Wikipedia fails to provide any substantial evidence to support this kind of a bold accusation. Radical allegations require strong evidence. And the more radical the allegation, the stronger the evidence should be. And Wiki fails the test on the topic of of, of Gary North. They just do not, after making that kind of an accusation, they do not provide the kind of evidence that it takes to support that kind of accusation. Let me give you a, just a side example of this. With just hopefully, I'm not beating a dead horse too much. Let's say, uh, let's say we're inside a sealed building with no windows and, and no light coming in from outside sources or whatever. And I tell you it's daytime outside. Well, that's that's not a wild. Uh, if you have no idea what time it is, and you have no idea what day. You know, if you've lost all track of time, you don't know how long you've been in there. And I say it's daytime outside. Well, that's not a crazy thing. It's a fifty-fifty shot. It could be, or it may not be. So, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't demand absolute evidence. What a what a crazy thing to say! How could it be daytime outside? You wouldn't. You know, all you'd have to do is look outside and see. That, that's all it takes. But let's say I make some kind of a more wild accusation or a wild per, uh, statement. Let's say instead of just saying it's daytime outside, what if I say? There's an asteroid coming at Earth, and it's going to impact right here on this spot on Earth three days, nine hours, and 16 minutes from now. Well, if that's my statement, then a person would expect that I would have something to back that up. And that's a pretty radical statement and a very specific statement. So a radical, specific statement like that should be backed up by very clear uh, substantial evidence, not just. Well, I said it. There it is. Yeah. Ha- if, however bold your accusation is, that's how strong your evidence has to be of it. Now, let's take this. Uh, let's take this away from defending Gary North against Wikipedia, and let's uh, let's look at let's look at Gary North's actual words, shall we? In this article over the weekend, titled "Bitcoin's." The biggest Ponzi scheme in history. Gary North wrote 41 paragraphs. It's basically divided into seven divisions. We can, we can call those chapter divisions or whatever, uh, uh, subheadings or however you want to look at it. And he put one, one line that he put in as a note. So, 41 paragraphs, seven divisions, one note. Within these 41 paragraphs, there are some bad and some good things. Uh, the bad, it's poorly written, especially if you consider it's Gary North. If you consider this is a very intelligent man who is one of the most productive writers in his field, and he's been doing this for a very long time, and he's extremely well-educated. If you consider that, then this is a horribly poorly written article. It has lots of typos. He has a real difficulty with the word Bitcoin and how to deal with it in a plural sense, and how to, he he doesn't, he clearly hasn't read a lot about Bitcoin. Otherwise, he would have picked up on the lingo and how Bitcoin is is pluralized and so forth like this. But in addition to that, there are other typos as well. Now, uh, so it's difficult to read. He uses uh, a very, very poor use of logic in this. Uh, very little examination of actual facts and very poor use of logic. And he comes to flawed conclusions because of it. Uh, that's of course what you would get by using flawed logic. You get flawed conclusions. The worst thing about the article though is that North ignores the elephant in the room. Um, and, the and, you know, I mentioned the elephant in the room with North earlier being the, the wiki uh, uh, accusations. Well, North in this article ignores government aggression. Now, it's really difficult to talk about free markets, money, money development, uh, money choices, cryptocurrency, bitcoins, dollars. It's really difficult to have any kind of substantial discussion about those without mentioning the elephant in the room, which is government aggression. Uh, yet North ignores the elephant in the room. Now, I said there was good parts. There are good parts. The best thing about this article, even though it's 41 paragraphs, uh, the best thing about this article is that it's fairly brief. A lot of those paragraphs are one sentence paragraphs. Uh, and from a writing point of view, uh, you know, one sentence paragraphs are maybe, maybe not the best. In addition to it being fairly brief, Uh, mostly he uses simple wording and simple concepts. There's no complicated economic jargon. Um, that's, that's a relief. That's nice to not have to not have a huge article packed full of really difficult economic, uh, concepts. You don't have to deal with that. He's, he's pretty simple. He's pretty, you know, forward about what he's saying. Now, he does make some good points that need to be emphasized. And so I, as, as I'm going through this critique of his article, I want to bring out the good things that he does say, and I want to point those out because I think they're really important to hear at this particular moment in Bitcoin's history. So for my analysis, um, I'm going to actually read part of it. This is the first paragraph, and I'm reading verbatim. It says, I hereby make a prediction... Bitcoin's, bitcoins, not the singular. Uh, so I'll, I'll read it again without making fun of his uh, wording. I hereby make a prediction: Bitcoins will go down in history as the most spectacular private Ponzi scheme in history. It'll, it will dwarf anything dreamed of by Bernard Madoff. It will never rival Social Security, however. And again this some some poor use of uh of writing uh technique here, but um, sadly, the worst part about that little paragraph is that North falls into a collectivist trap with his terminology. Uh, he's kind of saying that Bitcoin is a private um a private Ponzi scheme, compares it to Bernie Madoff. And then he says, he he essentially also compares it to Social Security, which he's inferring to be a public uh, Ponzi uh, Ponzi scheme. Now, the problem is here, we're trying to say Bitcoin is a private Ponzi scheme, whereas Social Security is a public Ponzi scheme. And, you know, if you're a long-time listener of mine, You'll know that I get a little picky when when I start talking about you know what is private and what is public, and it, it, can there be public? I mean, it, sure, there can be public in the sense that if you're standing outside in a crowd, uh, you're in the you're among the public. But for there to be a public Ponzi scheme, you have to have someone operating a Ponzi scheme. There has to be someone who set it up. There has to be someone who who profits by it. And you have to have people who who lose money for it to be a, a Ponzi scheme so so sure Social security is a Ponzi scheme, but it's not it's not a public Ponzi scheme in the sense that the the ownership of the social security Ponzi scheme is not some vague public. There are specific people who designed social security, and there are specific people who have made vast fortunes off of Social Security. And it's the same bankers and government people that are the, the same gang of criminals, essentially, that have been running the Ponzi scheme of Social Security for all these years. It's not public. It's not the victim's fault. It's not all of us running Social Security. It is a Ponzi scheme, and it is run by a very small collection of thieves, uh, of robbers. But it's not public it, because that would infer that there's some kind of public ownership of Social security. There is no public ownership. There can be no such thing as public ownership. And, and without going into a whole thing on that, hopefully my listeners already understand that, that aspect of this argument. So so to say that, that I, and I realize that's kind of a picky point, but I think it's important to understand Social security is, is, a, is a criminal uh, is run by a criminal outfit. And here's the other thing. We don't have a choice with Social Security. In that sense, you know, to a certain extent, it's selling to the American people was a Ponzi scheme. Um, but, But since the 1930s, it's been enacted as law, and we don't have a choice. We've got a gun pointed to our face that says, you're going to invest in this thing. So in that sense, you know, it's really just robbery. Now nobody's pointing a gun at anybody to get them to invest in Bitcoin. The other thing is, there's nobody who runs Bitcoin. There is not a collection, there is not like a, a committee of people who sit down and decide what Bitcoin is going to do or how it's going to function or, or who's going to get paid off out of it. It doesn't work like that. It was never set up to work like that. It can't work like that. It's impossible for it to work that way. It's not like Bernie Madoff at all. It has no similarities to Bernie Madoff or Social Security in that sense. So... Okay, so that's his first paragraph there. Now, his second paragraph, and I'm not going to do this to every paragraph, but I am going to read quite a few of them. Uh, his second paragraph says, and I quote, To explain my position, I must do two things. First, I will describe the economics of every Ponzi scheme. Second, I will explain the Austrian School of Economics theory of the origin of money. My analysis is strictly economic. And Now, here's the problem with this. In a in a well written article, in a in a critique article like this is uh, presenting itself to be, you would expect the writer to first explain what a Ponzi scheme is, and you would expect him to be uh, clinical in that, in sort of a neutral way, explaining the you know what it takes for something to be considered a Ponzi scheme. Then you would expect the writer to explain the Austrian view of the origin of money. Then you would expect the writer to explain how Bitcoin is more like a Ponzi scheme than an alternative form of money. Now, North fails to do this, uh, much like the way Wikipedia fails to convict North in the examples I gave a minute ago. Um, remember, you know, radical allegations or radical accusations require strong evidence. And the more radical the allegation, the stronger the evidence should be. Now Gary North, in this article, accuses the investors of Bitcoin, uh, of being fools, and he accuses the inventor, he says inventor, but, but uh, as most of us realize, it was probably not one person that invented Bitcoin, but he accuses the, the, the origin, uh, the originators of Bitcoin of running a scam. Now that's, 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 that's pretty, that's a fairly strong uh, accusation. And if you're going to make an accusation that there are specific people running a scam that's bilking people out of billions of dollars, if that's your accusation, then it requires more than a flipping offhand co- uh, condemnation. You need to have some facts. You need to have your facts lined out, and you need to know what you're talking about. And And I'm going to show you here in a second, Gary North does not know what he's talking about. Now, in addition to all that, North never actually explains what a Ponzi scheme is. He only partly covers, uh, what a Ponzi scheme is. He doesn't really even explain, you know, what his criteria, criteria is, much less gives an actual, uh, description of a Ponzi scheme. And he only partly covers the Austrian view of money. He doesn't even do a good job of that. Now maybe, and there might be a good reason. It might be that he realizes that many, if not most of his, re- of his readers are well accuss- uh, are well, um, uh, are, know the Austrian view of money very well. So he does, maybe he feels like he doesn't need to go over it. But if you're writing something like this, that's, that, that stands to be this important, then you need to write it in a way where you define your terms and you're very specific about what you're talking about. And he fails to do that. In the third paragraph, he says, and I quote again, first, someone who, someone, first, someone who no one has ever heard of before announces that he has discovered a way to make money. In the case of bitcoins, the claim is literal. The creator literally made what he says is money or will be money. He made his money out of digits. He made it out of nothing. Think Federal Reserve wannabe. Well, um, first off, he's using this phrase out of nothing, and I think he's using it intentionally. I don't think he's so incompetent that he would just throw a phrase out like that in reference to money, uh, not knowing what it is he's saying. Um, when we're talking about money, we're talking. We we have two different things. we we have what we hold in our hand or in our you know checking account or whatever. And then we have what we perceive as value of the money. So then uh, a checking account essentially is nothing but digits. Uh, the vast majority of dollars of Federal Reserve notes, the vast majority of those don't exist in a physical form. They are simply digits. Um, so in that sense, uh, you know, Okay, but let's go back to this out-of-nothing thing. See, we have these two different words, ex nihilo and fiat. Ex nihilo actually means out-of-nothing or out-of-the-heavens or out-of-the-vapors. It, it, it's literally pulling it out of the sky. This, this is where the word has its origins. Um, when you see the magician... Uh, who who reaches his hand in a in an odd way and flips it and all of a sudden there's uh, you know there's flowers in his hand or there's a scarf in his hand or there's a, a walking stick in his hand that of course it's a trick but the idea is that's ex nihilo that's out of nothing um, now that's what Gary North is is accusing Bitcoin of being that it's out of nothing um, but that's not really accurate at all. The real case should be, is it fiat? What is fiat? What's the difference between fiat and ex nihilo? Well, fiat means that it's based on faith. Uh, it's Fiat is a word that's very much like the word amen that you say at the end of a prayer. It literally means, uh, so be it, or as it is, or I believe it to be so, or let it be. Uh, these are different ways of saying the same word fiat, or amen. So fiat is an act of faith. Ex nihilo is an act of creation. We have two different, very different things here. So, um, and, okay, so, and now the other thing I was talking about was value. So we have digits in a check, in a checking account. And those are nothing other than, you know, warm spots on a, on a hard drive. They just, that's all they are. Um, actual dollars, Federal Reserve notes in a bank are actually just warm spots on a hard drive. They're just digi- digits. Uh, very few of them relative to the amount of money that there is. Very few of them are actual printed dollar bills that you could hold in your hand. But what we're really talking about here is value. And value is in the eye of the beholder. If you think about, there's a couple of different people who have made uh, YouTube videos. I think Kokesh made one of them, where they go up to somebody who knows nothing about gold and silver, and they offer them like a, uh, a silver round for a hamburger or whatever, and they won't take it. Of course they won't take it. It's not money. See? They don't know what the value of silver is. So to them, the silver literally has no value. Value only comes to something if you believe it has value. Fiat. You believe in it. If you believe that a, that a silver round is worth $20 then it's worth $20. If you believe the silver round is worth $50, then it's worth $50 because you believe it. And that's how money works, whether we're talking about silver or Federal Reserve notes or bananas. It doesn't matter what your money is. If you believe it's worth a certain thing, then that's what it's worth to you. Now, if you can get somebody else to agree with you on a a value, but the thing of it is nobody values the same object uh, the same way. If everybody valued the same things at the same level, then no one would ever exchange anything. There would never be any exchange because we would always look at everything by the same values. Two different people have to view the objects involved with different values in order for them to exchange them. So his, his argument here that, uh, that Bitcoin is, uh, out of nothing is, is not correct. It, um it, it well let's go in this direction. Um, Bitcoin has a value because people believe it has a value. Fiat. Okay, government uh, federal notes, Federal Reserve notes have a value. And to a certain extent, that value is based on the fact that people believe it has a value. But why is that? Why do people believe it has a value? Why do people believe that the Federal Reserve note has value? And ultimately, it goes to the elephant in the room that Gary North doesn't want to talk about for some reason. And that is the fact that Federal Reserve notes have value because the government has a gun pointed at your face and tells you you will use this as your form of exchange. We don't have a choice. And all around the world, in different countries, it's the same thing. If you don't believe me, then take an ounce of gold and go down to your bank and attempt to pay your mortgage. They, You might be able, if you can find a bank teller that knows the value of gold, you might be able to sell it to them for dollars and then pay your your mortgage. But you're not going to be able to go to any bank in the United States, any legitimate a legal functioning bank, and hand them an ounce of gold, and expect that to be credited to your uh, to your mortgage payment. They won't do it. It's it's not legal tender. It's the gun of the government in the face of the bank and in your face, telling you that Federal Reserve notes are money. And the vast majority of people would rather um, deal in the safety of not fighting the federal government rather than trying to set up their own kind of currency or using some alternative. So that's why dollars, why Federal Reserve notes, uh, are the uh, money of exchange of choice in the marketplace. Um, I'm going to break here for uh, a commercial, and stick with me. I'll be right back. How would you like to do something to support badquaker.com? Here's how easy it is. If you're already going to buy something from Amazon, go to badquaker.com first. Click on any of the buttons for Amazon. Once at Amazon, shop like you normally would. You'll pay the same price for the things you buy from Amazon, but Amazon will give badquaker.com a tiny portion of that purchase. It's amazingly easy to shop at Amazon, it won't cost you any extra, and you'll be supporting badquaker.com. Thank you. Okay, thanks for sticking with me through the break. So I want to go back to this third paragraph here. I'm going to read it for you again just to, to refresh your memory. He says, first, someone who no one has ever heard of before announces that he has discovered a way to make money. That's false. That is absolutely false. That was not the purpose of, of this. That's not the purpose of Bitcoin. And no one announced that. Okay, so I'm going to continue. In the case of Bitcoins, plural, uh the claim is literally... Oh, the claim is literal, yeah. Okay, the creator literally made what he says is money or will be money. He made his, this money out of digits. He made it out of nothing. Think Federal Reserve wannabe. And so I said right before the break that, you know, Federal Reserve notes have value. Um, why? Because the government gun pointed directly in your face says they have value and if you don't believe then they'll just arrest you and they'll throw you in a cage and if you resist they'll shoot you. Um, government aggression is the key to understanding this argument and North fails to include that in any of his analysis. The origin of money is not the issue here. He and he and throughout this article, he tries to make this an issue of the origin of money, but the origin of money is not the is not the issue. Money already existed before the government laws uh, began forcing us to use federal reserve notes. We choose to use the most painless method of exchange possible. That's what humans tend to do. And right now, the most painless form of uh, of exchange uses Federal Reserve dollars because if we do something other than that in the general marketplace, we have to deal with the federal government and its gun that's pointed at our face. So, um, you know, if I was to ask Gary North the question, I'd ask him this one question about this article. Why didn't you bring up the fact that Federal Reserve notes are backed by the aggression of government. Why, didn't, why did you completely ignore that? The other question I want to ask him is, why do you emphasize so much on the origin of money when Federal Reserve notes didn't come from that origin and neither did Bitcoin? And no one's trying to say that they did. It's, it's, in a sense, it's a, it's a straw man argument, but the way he builds it, he builds it into a false dichotomy. And I'll get into that. So the origin of money is not the issue. Money already existed before the uh, federal government decided to force us to use Federal Reserve notes. So there is no true money today uh, in the same sense that there's no free market. It just can't exist. You can't have a free market and have all the government influence that we have in, in every single aspect of exchange. There is no free market and there is no true money. The government has polluted all of those things. So, uh, Gary North's false dichotomy assumes that, uh, or it is based in assuming, that Federal Reserve notes uh, are examples of money in the Austrian sense, while he assumes that Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme. This is the false dichotomy that he offers to you in his argument, that uh, Federal Reserve notes are examples of Austrian uh, uh, true money, and Bitcoin's uh, Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme that 's the false dichotomy that he offers you in paragraphs four, five, six, and seven. Uh, he attempts to explain a Ponzi scheme, but he doesn't he doesn't make a very good attempt at it. He concludes that Bitcoin is not a Ponzi scheme but what he calls a super money scheme, as described by George Goodman now, after saying that. Then he goes on in chapter eight and nine. Well, I'll, I'll read this to you. I'll read chapter eight and nine to, I'm sorry, uh, paragraph eight and nine. I'll read those really quick for you here. The Ponzi aspect of it comes when we look at the justification for bitcoins. They were sold on the basis that bitcoins will be an alternative con- currency. In other words, this will be the money of the future. The coins He calls them, the coins will never be the money of the future. This is my main argument. Okay, so that's his paragraphs 8 and 9. Now, let's set aside his inconsistency with the pluralization of the word Bitcoin and his weird use of coins rather than Bitcoin. Um, let 's just set that aside for a moment. that is an an, an indication of his ignorance of the terminology, but that doesn 't necessarily mean he 's dumb or anything like that. It just means it 's very clunky to try to read this uh, keeping in mind that he clearly doesn 't know what he 's talking about. North assumes um, what he calls the justification of bitcoin, and he uh, his assumption. Uh, is made in a way that that supports his false dichotomy that he's already has built up here the facts regarding the justification for bitcoin um, let, let's let's really think about this there are two kinds of people today in the bitcoin market there are one newcomers and opportunists they they're they're not all newcomers some of the opportunists are not uh, all newcomers, but but many of the newcomers are opportunists, opportunitists, opportunitists. Anyway, um, they're caught up in the excitement of the current price explosion. Uh, now that we have a second type of people who are in the Bitcoin market, and those are people who seek a currency that is some combination of the following characteristics. Now listen to this closely, because this is this is really what the true Bitcoin user. Is looking for. uh, They're looking for a, a. They're looking for a money that is voluntary, anonymous, duty free, untaxable, secure, divisible, easily transferable, portable, and can be easily hidden and retrieved when needed. Now, thinking of these two types of people, the newcomers and the opportunists or the people who seek a better currency. Thinking of those two types of people, North only chooses to see the first category, and he chooses to ignore entirely the second category, because it suits his needs. In the tenth paragraph, North uh, gives a really poor overview of the definition of money, uh, of the origin of money, as taught by Karl Minger and then uh, later by Ludwig von Mises in his book, The Theory of Money and Credit. Now, in uh, paragraph 11 and 12, I'll read those for you here real quick. North says, In that book, Mises argued, as Minger had before him, that money arises out of market transactions... That which did not function as money before now functions as money. Something that was value for its own sake, most likely gold or silver, becomes value for another purpose, namely the, fa- the facilitation of exchange. Pe- people move from barter to a monetary commodity. This increases the division of labor. As more and more people use the money commodity in order to facilitate exchange, the division of labor extends, and as a result, people's productivity increases. They can specialize. This specialization produces increased outputs per person and therefore increases income person. In this scenario, something that had been independent something that had independent value becomes the focus of traders who find that their ability to buy and sell increases as a result of the use of this commodity. Money develops out of market exchanges. Money was not used for its own sake initially, but it becomes widely used as money as a result of it, but it becomes widely used as money as a result of its innumerable transactions within the economy. So, that was a lot to read, but so his first point there's there's actually six points in this in this little section. His first point is that money arises out of market transactions. Yes, Bitcoin did this, Federal Reserve notes did not. Federal Reserve notes were an act of Congress. We have federal reserve notes because a small committee of thieves said this is what lo- this is what money is in the United States and money can be nothing else. That's not arising out of market transactions. Bitcoin did arise out of market transactions. Point 2. That which didn't function as money now functions as money. Bitcoin did that. Federal federal reserve notes did it, but they did it at the barrel of a gun. Bitcoin are voluntary, whereas Federal Reserve notes are not. Point three, the thing had value for its own sake, like gold and silver. Well, Federal Reserve notes fail right there, don't they? Federal Reserve notes fail, and so does Bitcoin. Uh, Neither has any inherent value. But if you actually read what Mises has to say about it, it's it's not that much of a necessity the the inherent value of the thing um, is only important in the very beginning of uh of developing money as opposed to barter that's not that's not something that's required in money later on okay uh let's keep moving along here the move from a barter to a monetary economy was not associated with government-forced money, so the argument doesn't apply to federal notes or Bitcoin. That's the fourth uh, point in this. The fifth point being the division of labor is extended by the use of money as an exchange. This is, uh, this is unrelated to Federal Reserve notes, and it assumes the division of labor as a goal of money exchange. Now I'll talk more about that a little bit later. Later, but but that's a flaw in Gary North's argument here. People don't uh, people don't choose a commodity. People don't choose a monetary uh, uh, item um, because of how well it it facilitates the uh, the division of labor. That doesn't come into their into their thinking. And six. Money was not used for its own sake initially, but it becomes widely used as money as a result of innumerable, innumerable transactions within the economy. F- now, th- think about this: Fed notes uh, didn't begin like this. Um, it, this doesn't—they don't fit this criteria. And Federal Reserve notes have been declining in their ability to fill this role since their inception. They, they've lost, what, 98% of the value? A, a Federal Reserve note has lost 98% of its value over the last 100 years. Well, Bitcoin did develop like this. And um, other than the present excitement that's surrounding Bitcoin, this perfectly describes Bitcoin's uh, uh, development. And so let's jump to paragraph uh, 13 where he says, and again I quote, Here is the central fact of money. Money is the product of the market process. It arises out of an unplanned, decentralized process. This takes time. It takes a lot of time. It spreads slowly. As new people discover it as a tool of production, uh, because it increases the size of the market for all goods and services. No one says, I think I'll invent a new form of money. And then he says, note at, let's see. Note, any time you see a proposal for a new form of money, hold on to your old money, he says. Now, this is back to North's false dichotomy here, and his choice is to ignore the elephant in the room, the government monetary laws, and the gun pointed at your face. Federal Reserve notes are not the product of market process and did arise from a planned centralized process. Federal Reserve, hear that. Federal Reserve notes did not spring out of the market spontaneously. They did arise by a central planning committee who decided to use the force of law to put them on everybody else. So by North's own description, Federal Reserve notes are not money. North wants to compare bitcoins to the Austrian concept of perfect money development while ignoring the last 100 years of government laws and violence. Bitcoin is designed to compete against an existing government money. It's not uh, competing against some perfect theoretical money. There, there is no perfect theoretical Austrian money in the market today. There's none because of the aggression of government. Again, this is North's false dichotomy that he's trying to draw for you here to get you to choose between something that he's declaring just, uh, just by his own word, that it's a, a Ponzi scheme. Or choose uh, Federal Reserve notes, which he's equating to being perfect Austrian uh, theory money, which it's not. Let's go to paragraph 14 and 15. The central benefit of money is its predictable purchasing power. A monetary commodity is not easy to produce. The cost of mining is high. Money is, money is slowly adopted by a large number of participants. These participants use money as a means of exchange. Why? Because it's it was valuable the day before, they therefore expect it to be valuable the next day. Money has continually oh money has continui- continui- continuity of value. This is not intrud- intrinsic value, it is historic value. So a person can buy money by the sale of goods or services. Set this money aside and re-enter the market in a different location or a different time in the confidence that he will probably be able to buy a similar quantity of goods and services. Money is not accumulated for its own sake. It is accumulated to buy future goods and services. It is useful in the facilitation of exchange precisely because its market value varies little over time. It is the predictability of money's market exchange rate that makes it money. Um, this is all true and pretty much fits Bitcoin better than government paper money. The difference being that, that the government gun forcing us to use paper money um, that's that's the difference. That's why we have dollars. It's because of the government gun forcing us to use them. And this government gun money constantly loses value. So it's constantly losing value, while Bitcoin is constantly gaining value. Which would you rather uh, use? As a, if you're accepting some kind of money for goods, would you rather accept money that you know is going to be worth less tomorrow? Or would you prefer to accept money that you know is going to be worth more tomorrow? Well, that's the comparison between dollars and Bitcoin. It's not it's not the false dichotomy that that North is trying to set up here. Keep in mind what he said here. He says uh, uh, a monetary commodity is not easy to produce. The cost of mining is high, and money is slowly adopted by a large number of participants. Well, that's not Federal Reserve dollars. Uh, Federal Reserve dollars can be easily produced. They have almost no cost to their production. Almost all of them that are created exist only in the digital format. The vast majority of Federal Reserve dollars only exist in digital format. Bitcoins have consistently, well not consistently, radically, but the Bitcoins have increased in value whereas government paper money Always decreases in value and eventually all paper money loses 100% of its value. All paper money in history, including the dollar, have and will fall into zero at some point. You can't, you can't say that as a fact about Bitcoin. You can maybe predict it. You can think that that might be the case. And there are conditions where that could be the case. But it's a historical fact that all paper money produced by governments has in all times and will in the future eventually be worth nothing. It costs them almost nothing to produce it, and they almost always overproduce it. That can't happen with Bitcoin. And then he states in one of his bold headings here, Bitcoins are not money, in all caps. Well, North is using the logical fallacy of a mere assertion. He's ignoring Minger, he's ignoring Mises, and he's just asserting his assumption. The fact is, bananas could be money if people decided to start trading in them tomorrow. And it doesn't really, it doesn't matter what North's opinion about bananas are. If people agree to exchange goods and services for bananas, then bananas are money. And it doesn't matter anything else that uh, that North or anybody else has to say about it. And as a matter of fact, if you only have two people who are exchanging goods and services for bananas, then in that exchange, bananas are money. In paragraph 16, North says, and again I quote: Now look, now let us look at bitcoins. And he doesn't even capitalize at that time. Now let us look at bitcoins. The market value of one Bitcoin has gone from about $2 to 1000 in a year. This is not money. This commodity is not being bought for its services as money. It is unpredictable to a fault. Now, there are three unsupported statements in that little bit of wordage. One, he says this is not money, and he repeats the same assertion over and over and over. It's just a, it's just a mere, it's the fallacy of a mere assertion. He just repeats it. If he says it enough times, he expects people to believe it. Uh, two, this commodity is not being bought for its services at money, as money. Uh, again, the, his fallacy is assuming the conclusion. He's assuming, um, that, that, that he's already right on everything. He's not presenting any argument as to why he's right. He's just assuming the conclusion. North, actually, in his arrogance he 's assuming that he knows the motivations of all bitcoin users that 's pretty amazing I, I wonder what other uh, forms of uh, of you know, mind magic can he pull to be able to know what the motivations of of all bitcoin users are and the third he says it 's unpredictable to a fault uh, again, this is just a mere assertion it 's another fallacy. Um, along with his failure to compare Bitcoin to its competition, which is government paper money, which loses value constantly and could, you know, as many economists have said, the dollar could go into hyperinflation at any point. I mean, it could happen tomorrow, it could happen six months from now, it could happen ten years from now. There's absolutely nothing that's predictable um about the US dollar. It's at the whims of a very small group of people and investors around the world. You know, if a lot of people all at once just decide the petrodollar is worthless and let's use the yen or whatever, then American Federal Reserve dollars could be worthless overnight. So the predictability of it is not even a, that's not a valid argument to throw that at Bitcoin. In paragraph 17, North confuses the current Bitcoin price surge with the purpose of Bitcoin. It was never meant to be an investment. Bitcoin is not an investment. It was never meant to be an investment. It was meant to be a competitive currency. As a competitive currency, we don't know its value. We can't, we don't, there's no way to know. Is, is Bitcoin overvalued at a thousand dollars of Bitcoin? We don't know. Is Bitcoin overvalued at 2000 a Bitcoin? We don't know. Is Bitcoin overvalued at $1 a Bitcoin? We don't know. Because as a competitive currency, it hasn't had the opportunity to work that out yet. Paragraph 18 says, again I read, This digital so-called money will not be used to facilitate exchange. Nobody Nobody, he says, nobody is going to be getting rid of an asset that has moved from $2 to 1000 in one year in order to buy pizzas. People want to hang on to it, refuse to sell, in hopes that it will go to 2000 This is the classic Mark of a Ponzi scheme psychology. People do not buy the investment for the benefits that the investment provides as an investment. In other words, because it is a capital asset, They buy it only because it has gone up in price. They expect Bitcoin, oops, I'm sorry, they expect this to continue. So he says this digital so-called money will not be used to facilitate exchange. Well, I'm sorry, Gary North. You uh, are pretty ignorant on this topic, aren't you? This is a huge display of ignorance on his part. It's being used to facilitate exchange. Right now as I'm recording this and right as Gary North was writing his article, For the moment, let's ignore the Silk Road and the dozens of Silk Road uh, clones that are out there. Let's just ignore those, just for a moment. The primary purpose of Bitcoin is to facilitate unrecorded exchange. So so it's hard to document uh, how much exactly exchange is going on in places like the Bitcoin and, and other places like that. But let's just consider charity for a moment. I'm going to give you three examples. Example number one, November 30th, 2013, that was yesterday, on ESPN's TV show College Game Day, a kid in the background was holding a sign that said, Hi, Mom, send Bitcoin. And it had his little Bitcoin scan uh, picture there. And uh, people grabbed that off the TV and sent over $3,500 in Bitcoin to that kid within the first 12 hours. Now, again, this happened yesterday, November thirtieth, two 2013, when Bitcoin was over $1,100 at the time. Gary North says that people will not let go of Bitcoin, that they're going to hold on to it, that they absolutely... He's talking in absolutes here. Like he knows the will and the mind and, and and the behavior of every Bitcoin owner. And he says, as a matter of fact, that people will not let go of it. Well, yesterday, in 12 hours, um, in one incident, $3,500 worth of Bitcoin were sent to a kid just because he held up a sign on an ESPN show that said, Hi, Mom, send Bit- send Bitcoin. Now, example number two... During his current dark wallet campaign, Cody Wilson raised over $70,000 in Bitcoin while the price of Bitcoin has been going through the roof. This has happened just in the last few weeks. Example number three, Bitcoin Not Bombs has had a huge success with its Hoodie, uh, Hoodie the Homeless program, including a huge outpouring of Bitcoin on Black Friday right in the middle of the, of the Bitcoin surge. So he says people want to hang on to it, refusing to sell it in hopes that it will go to 2000 No, Gary, you don't know what you're talking about. You just simply do not know what you're talking about. But it is easy to see Gary North's confusion. Gary, uh, he confuses the activity that he sees, which he doesn't see the whole thing. He's only seeing people investing into it. But he confuses the activity that he sees for being some kind of sinister plot. When, in fact, what we're actually observing, or what he should be seeing, what he should be recognizing, is an example of Grisham's Law, where bad money drives out good money. Now, this is the big threat to Bitcoin right now. The big threat to Bitcoin is that people will perceive Bitcoin as being a better money than U.S. dollars, and therefore they will try to hoard Bitcoin by throwing their dollars at it. And what they'll do is they'll drive the price of Bitcoin up so high that it will not be good for an exchange. And and that is. And he almost sees it, but he doesn't see it. He sees it as a Ponzi scheme, and he doesn't see Grisham's law taking effect here. Um, this is this seriously is the greatest threat to Bitcoin is that Grisham's law will take over and people will throw away their Federal Reserve notes to get Bitcoin and then Bitcoin will be so expensive that nobody can do anything with it. But the nice thing about Bitcoin is that since it is so divisible, since it can be div- divided into such tiny uh, portions, um, it's it's the, the predictability of Grisham's law is already built into it. So that's one of the wonders of it. But it's still one of the greatest threats to it. All right, let's move ahead here. Paragraph 19. Here's the Austrian school theory of money. People buy money because it has not fallen in price but it has also not gone up in price much either. It is predictable. Why? Because it is held in reserve by a large number of people over a large geographical area. It is because money through tradition, through experience, and through endless numbers of exchanges on a voluntary basis. It has proven itself in the marketplace as a means of facilitating exchange and thereby as a means of preserving value over time. Now, two points on this. One that's not the Austrian school of uh, theory of of money it's an aspect of the Austrian school of uh, the Austrian theory of money um, of the origin of money but is not the whole thing in and of itself and number two no existing government paper money fits North's criteria this is just reassuring his false dichotomy that he's created here it's not, it's not supporting evidence of any kind. It's, it's, only, it's only supporting his own false dichotomy. Paragraph 20. Here is an economic fact. The number of fools is limited. They're, they are a scarce economic resource. As the price of bitcoins rises, more fools will be lured into the market. But this is a finite market. The bold ignorance of Gary North is based on the fact that he is not in touch with the Bitcoin community. They are more than just stupid speculators. They are not a collection of fools. And Gary North is a fool for judging people that he doesn't understand and that he doesn't know anything about. As I said earlier, there are two kinds of people uh, today in the Bitcoin market. There are one Newcomers and opportunists that are caught up in excitement, in the excitement of the price uh, explosion. And two, people who seek a currency that is some combination of the following characteristics. It is voluntary, anonymous, duty-free, untaxable, secure, divisible, easily transferable, portable, and can be hidden and retrieved when needed. North is choosing to only see the first category and he's choosing to ignore the second. Therefore, I will say in this particular case, Gary North is the fool, and he should watch who he calls fool. He should watch who he who who he's throwing names out at. He's he's assuming that Bitcoin is some kind of scam and that a group of, uh, of hackers have done some kind of scam that they're going to rip people off for billions of dollars, and only a bunch of fools would be, uh, would be into it. Now, I want to get something really, really clear here. There is a good likelihood that Bitcoin will crash, and there's a good likelihood Bitcoin will crash soon. There's also a good likelihood that the crash may not happen for a very long time, or maybe never. There's a good likelihood that, there, that Bitcoin will never come down. There's also, uh, you know, Bitcoin could go up to $10,000. Bitcoin could go to $10,000 and crash back to $100. That's absolutely possible. Or Bitcoin could go to 100000 and stay there. That's also possible. Federal Reserve notes, on the other hand, are going to crash. Now, I very rarely talk about the future in absolute terms. But I'm telling you, Federal Reserve notes are going to crash. They always have. Paper money from governments always has crashed. So I can guarantee you that Federal Reserve notes will crash. And at some point, Federal Reserve notes will be worth zero. And I would say the sooner the better. Bitcoin is not a perfect money. Bitcoin was not produced to be a perfect money. And it doesn't have to be a perfect money. It's not competing with perfect money. It's competing with trash. It's competing with government notes that are based on force and aggression. Imagine Bitcoin as an athlete for a second. Here's a little bit of a stretch of the imagination. Let's let's imagine Bitcoin as a boxer. Um, Bitcoin doesn't have to be the perfect athlete. Bitcoin doesn't have to be a combination of Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, Mike Tyson. Uh, Bitcoin just has to be better than its competitors. Bitcoin's competitors, like the dollar and like the euro, they're like boxers who only win because they fight in rigged fights. Well, Bitcoin can't be rigged. Bitcoin will force an honest fight. So Bitcoin doesn't have to be the perfect combination of Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, and Mike Tyson. Bitcoin only has to be good enough to beat the fat, lazy government money. And it can and it will. You know, there's an old saying, two guys are in the woods and a bear starts coming at them. One guy looks at the other guy and realizes that he doesn't have to outrun the bear. He only has to outrun the other guy. And that's kind of the situation with Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't have to outrun a mythical, perfect money Bitcoin only has to beat the dollar and the euro and the other government aggression dollar monetary units that are out there. And it can do that. Paragraph 22, he says, again, and I quote, when you see an offer of an investment which inherently cannot possibly exist on its own merits, and yet lots of people are coming into the market to buy the item, you know without any question that this is a Ponzi scheme. Well, that's not the definition of a Ponzi scheme. And it just happens to be a really good description of Federal Reserve note. Paragraph 23. I read exactly as he wrote it. In order for bitcoins to become an alternative currency, they will have to be, there will have to be millions of users of the currency. There will have to be tens of millions, millions of users of the currency. They will have to develop in a market on their own merit as money, not as an investment of dollars in order to get more dollars back. It would have to develop through exchange, not brought on as an investment. In other words, the free market will have to adopt bitcoins as a means of increasing the division of labor. Now, every bit of that except for the last line is like, duh, yeah, Right. That's what Bitcoin's been doing, except for the last line. Let's take a look at that last line. He said, in other words, the free market will have to adopt Bitcoins as a means of increasing the division of labor. People don't prefer a medium of exchange based on its ability to increase the division of labor. People don't think about the division of labor when they swipe their debit card at the gas pump. Nobody thinks about the division of labor when they, when they pay Bitcoin for an asthma inhaler on the Silk Road. They think about how stupid the government is, uh, for outlawing asthma inhalers. But they don't think about the division of labor. Bringing the division of labor into the argument is a fallback to to North's false dichotomy. He wants us to talk about the development of money in a market where there is none. But we already have money. It's already been done. We already have money providing the division of labor. That's, that's, that's a moot point in this argument because it's already taken care of. The money we have is a very crappy money based on government violence, but we have money. So we don't, the money's already developed. Not a part of the argument, Gary. And keep in mind, governments are never going to allow, uh, money to be based on a pure Austrian money theory. It's too great of a threat to them. It's even a bigger threat than, than, than Bitcoin. And then they can stop that. They can stop a, 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 a currency based on gold. They can stop a currency based on silver. They've proven that. They've done it. It's done. It's already over. That battle's won. The Austrian uh, theories of money have lost in the marketplace because the government gun is pointed at all of us, forcing us to not use real money, real Austrian-type money but bitcoin has proven that governments are currently impotent at stopping cryptocurrency in the end some other cryptocurrency may beat bitcoin there's a variety of competitors out there and who knows you know who knows what the market's going to bear at some point in time bitcoin you know it's like uh, aol at one point in time everything was on the internet was aol well now aol is pretty much non-existent so, you know, some other uh, cryptocurrency may beat Bitcoin. Um, bit, I'm not particularly in love with Bitcoin uh, because it's Bitcoin. Uh, any any cryptocurrency that, that wins is the one that's going to beat, uh, you know, fiat dollars, uh, government-issued dollars. But right now, in this market as it exists today, Bitcoin can and is beating central banking script. In paragraphs 24, 25, and 26, he basically just repeats his same flawed assertions. In paragraph 27, 28, he says, and here's these one-line paragraphs. So he says, uh, which is money, dollars or bitcoins? The answer is obvious, dollars. This is a Ponzi scheme. Okay, now, two points here. He failed to define what a Ponzi scheme is, and two He compared Bitcoin to the Austrian theory of the origin of money. He didn't compare dollars. Uh, He didn't compare dollars to the Austrian theory, and he didn't compare dollars to Bitcoins. His blind assertion that dollars are money and Bitcoin is not is simply a display of the opinion of a narrow-minded fool with an ego larger than his intelligence. Now, consider this. I'm here to tell you that Gary North is an extremely intelligent man. I'm not, I'm not insulting his intelligence. I'm just saying that however grand his intelligence is, his ego dwarfs it because he, he, he is, he thinks himself to be so smart that he doesn't even have to check out what he's talking about. The things that I'm saying here about Bitcoin are not hidden secrets. It's not stuff you can't find out with a little bit of research. Paragraph thirty two he says anytime you buy an anytime you buy an investment, you had better have an exit strategy. There is no exit strategy for Bitcoin. Okay, folks, listen. Do not buy Bitcoins as an investment. Okay? Bitcoin is not and should never be an investment. Bit do not buy dollars as an investment. Dollars should not be. They are not, and they should not be an investment. So, so why, why, why even bring that up like that? Here's another piece of advice. Don't listen to egomaniacs who build arguments on logical fallacies and depend on name calling and wild accusations without any supporting evidence. How's that for advice? Whether we're talking about people who accuse Gary North of radical bigoted beliefs, or whether we're talking about Gary North accusing the creators of Bitcoin of being crooks, and Bitcoin users of being fools. Don't listen to a-ego who build arguments on logical fallacies and depend on name-calling and wild accusations without any supporting evidence. The creators of Bitcoin are not running a Ponzi scheme. People who use cryptocurrencies are not fools. And Wikipedia needs to clean up their act and get their facts straight, and Gary North needs to stick to topics that he understands. So I hope that wasn't too harsh. Folks, uh, be sure and listen to Freedom Fiends live every Saturday and Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern. They're on the Genesis Communication Network, 18 radio stations nationwide, and that's growing almost on a weekly basis. You can, you can listen to them on the Internet at GCNlive.com or at the Liberty Radio Network at LRN.FM. But either way, Set aside a couple hours every Saturday and Sunday and listen to the Freedom Fiends live. And folks, thanks for listening today, and remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. Thank you very much, folks.